New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Thank you very much, Ali, and uh, hello again. Nice to uh, be here. Great to be here, actually. We are are loving being at New Horizon and uh, thoroughly enjoying it. Um, And yeah, yesterday, uh, we did finally get our wee dander on the strand. So we did. It was a little bit more than a dander because we were running, but it was absolutely beautiful. Huge traffic jam, though. I've never seen such a traffic jam on a beach. And all these worried-looking drivers, because the tide was coming in, and they were driving right along the tide line. And uh, anyway, it was great. Wonderful, uh, wonderful to be there and see some of the astonishing beauty of this area. We're in Psalm 73 today, so uh, if you'd open that in your Bibles or on your devices, without further ado, we'll get stuck in. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. We thank him for it. Father, thank you for your word. Your word which speaks to us. Your word which speaks for us. Thank you for this painfully honest psalm. And yet thank you for its journey of hope. As we enter its pain, please meet us in the power of your Holy Spirit. That for those of us who find ourselves right now where this psalmist was then, you would draw us on that journey of hope. That we might delight to be with you again. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So this morning we're going to be thinking really about doubt. Let me tell you about Andy. Uh, Andy was a, uh, a strong Christian, quite well known actually. Uh, he travelled a lot with his high-flying job. He was outstanding at it. And he did struggle to keep connection with his local church. But several years into his career, he was put on a project team with a bunch of very militant and articulate new atheists. And initially, they seemed curious that someone so successful and apparently sensible could believe anything so outdoubted and ignorant as the Christian gospel. But gradually, the attitude of his colleagues shifted from curiosity to outright scorn and hostility. And Andy, for whatever reason, wasn't in a place where he was ready to look for serious help. And slowly but surely, Andy's doubts got the better of him. And as far as I know, he's still in the wilderness. Julie was in her 50s. Her kids were growing up. Things weren't so great in her marriage. She was bored in her job. She'd been a Christian for years, but... God didn't seem to be helping her very much in the struggles of her life right now. And she felt alienated at church from the happy and apparently sorted faces that she saw around her. And in the quietness of her own heart, Julie was no longer really sure what she believed. Amy grew up in the church. She was in her teenage years. She was bright. She got a good degree a bit later on. And then she grew up and got a good career. And she saw herself as successful. For Amy, doubt of her childhood faith wasn't so much a struggle as a kind of ingrained way of life. Frankly, she was convinced of her intellectual superiority to her parents and her youth leaders at church. And quite blind to the unquestioned assumptions in her own thinking. And she looked with scorn on her naive friends who were still convinced Christians. Jeff and Joe, well, they were a lovely Christian couple. And they longed to have children. But month after month came and went. And there was still no pregnancy. They so struggled with friends in church and out of church who, to be honest, seemed to be able to have as many children as they ever desired. And they also expected that uh, they would give, uh, that, that Jeff and Joe would give them sympathy when their own kids were being difficult. And that felt so hard to Jeff and Joe, who just longed to have a kid of their own. It seemed to them like God showered 
blessing on people who often ignored him, but didn't really care about their personal agony. Was God really the good God that the Bible portrayed him to be? Andy, Julie, Amy, Jeff, and Joe. In one sense, not all of them are real people, some of them are, but I've met all of them more than once over the years, and you probably have too. They have many stories. They've taken many different journeys and pathways, but all of them came to a place of doubt, to a place of crisis of faith, crisis in their thinking that they felt they couldn't ignore any longer. Doubt, of course, can arise in many different kinds of situations, and it can take many different kinds of of form. But most of us experience it. Probably all of us who are honest with ourselves do experience it. And sometimes it intensifies to a point where we feel we've come to a kind of hiatus in the renewing of our minds, and we've just got stuck, and we don't know how to move forward. After I spoke a little bit about my experience of depression on, the, on Tuesday, many people told me that they'd never actually heard anyone from the front talk about that. It's been great that on a number of occasions this week, different people have done. But I think it's similar with doubt. It's one of those things that we find it very hard to talk about to each other or on platforms. But here's the good news, again, that the Scripture doesn't share our reservation in this. Scripture isn't silent on the topic of doubts. And once again, we find it speaking for us in our doubts. It's what this psalm does, isn't it? As well as speaking to us in our doubts. So... To Psalm 73. For those of you who are interested, if you're not interested in technical things, you can just have a little rest for a couple of minutes, okay? And then I'll wake you up again. But if you are interested, I'm broadly going to follow a structure from a couple of commentators, Longman and Garland, who say that this psalm is chiastic. And I think we've got a picture of a chiastic structure that may come up on the screen. There you go. A chiastic structure means that the structure moves forward from the beginning and backwards from the end in kind of parallel layers, which pivot around a central point, which is the main heart and kind of guts of the psalm. So we'll follow that structure through if you're interested That's what we're doing. If you're not, then forget it, but please wake up again now because we're into the real stuff. And we begin with the first layer, and it's the moment of crisis and faith where experience and belief seem in irreconcilable conflict. Verse 1, the psalmist believes that God is good to his faithful people. That's his conviction But verse 2, his faith has become clouded with confusion because it seems that in reality, God is good to the wicked who who ignore him rather than to the pure in heart who seek him. His experience is challenging his belief and that precipitates the crisis of faith. And many of us have been where Asaph the psalmist was. We get overlooked for a promotion why someone known as the company bully gets the job we were hoping for. We have chronic health problems, 
while our atheist friends look to us like they're living healthy, trouble-free, energetic lives. We read our Bibles longing for God, but frankly, our hearts are run dry. And day after day, we miss the breakthrough that we're longing for. And in that tension between belief and experience, it feels like something is breaking, as if our foot might slip. Verse 2, as if I'd lost my foothold. This stuff is very raw. And when you're there, it's very real. Now, the struggle in the psalm, of course, it does have a kind of intellectual element. How do you make sense of the goodness of God when life is going pear-shaped? That's a legitimate intellectual question to wrestle with. But the great gift of Psalm 73 to us is the self-awareness of the writer. Because what we find him doing is moving beyond the intellectual puzzle of the psalm. He does address that to some degree, but he doesn't stay there. He moves beyond the intellectual puzzle to probe and explore what is actually happening in his heart. The heart is mentioned six times in this one psalm. And remember, the heart isn't just our emotions. It's deeper than that. It's, it's kind of the inner core of who we are. It's about our assumptions, our values, our presuppositions. Remember that quote from Chris Wright on the first day, that in the Bible, you think in your heart, not in the sense of doing your, pro, your intellectual firepower processing, but in the sense that you think in your heart, you bring, your heart brings its, its assumptions, its values, its presuppositions to your thinking. It's kind of the seat on which your thinking rests. And that's what's going on in this psalm. Did you notice in verse, uh, verse 1, he affirms God's goodness to the pure in heart, but then verse 2, there's that, but as for me. In other words, he's, he's probing deep inside. Something in him is resisting that conviction about the goodness of God. Something is happening in his heart. And then verse 3, he's envying. That's a, that's a heart word, isn't it? And then we get to verse 21 where he acknowledges that his heart has been grieved and embittered. It's not just a journey of the brain in terms of raw processing power. It's a crisis of the heart as well. And I think this is a key insight into our struggles with doubts, that though our doubts often do have an intellectual element, and we need people who can help us face them and deal with that level, still there is usually more going on. So often when I've been working with students or young adults, and there's a, there's a, a, a student, say, who'll come up and they're apparently having a real problem in their faith and they're wanting to walk away from God. And, if you can just get to them to the place where they're being honest, almost always there's a story. There's something they want to do that they know God doesn't want. There's a relationship they want to pursue which they know is outside of his best for them. And so doubt is their way of expressing this inner struggle of the heart. There may be legitimate questions, but beneath it, something deeper is going on. And because that's so often where the real problems actually lie, although we don't want to ignore or deny the intellectual problems, I want to encourage you, we do need the honesty, the integrity to dig beyond the intellectual questions and ask what's actually going on on our hearts that is making us feel the force of that question so powerfully. 
I think it's important to say that that process of probing your heart is rarely something you can do solo. You almost always need someone to help. It might be a friend's Uh, that you can have really honest conversation with. It might be a counselor who can just help you unpack and unravel what's going on deep inside. One of the things that I often want to say to folk who are struggling with doubt is don't isolate yourself from the people who might really be able to help you. There's this weird thing that goes on with doubt. In one sense, we want to find our way through and our way out of it, but in another sense, we want to validate it, and so we sometimes cut ourselves off from the people who might actually be able to help. It's what I really saw with this guy, Andy, that I mentioned. That's not really his, his name. And uh, I heard about his crisis of faith, and I was thinking, to be honest, I was thinking, I just want you to have coffee with John Lennox. But then I heard that John Lennox had, been that offered to be involved and no no that wasn't where he was he he wasn't ready actually to engage with the very people who could help him either with the heart issues or with the intellectual issues and if you're finding yourself stuck in that that kind of downward spiral of doubt i want to give you a gentle challenge and say look are you actually willing to bring into your life the people who could help you or are you actually only wanting validation for where you are. We actually need others to journey with us. People with the insight to probe our hearts. People with the experience to help us ask questions of our doubts so that we begin to process them. And it's precisely in bringing the reality of his heart into the presence of God in this psalm that Asaph, the writer, begins to walk into the place of transformation. So let's look with him into his troubled heart and see what's going on there. And maybe some of us will find some echoes in our own hearts. We move to the central section, um, uh, well, the, the central issue, not the central section, but the central issue, the central problem that he has in verses 4 to 12, where he is envying the prosperity of those whom he describes as the wicked. Unraveling this a little bit more, verses 4 and 5, he envies their trouble-free lives. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. That is such a distraction to faith, isn't it? That moment when you think it just isn't worth it because the people who ignore God seem to come off better in life than I do when I'm trying to honor him. Massive challenge to faith. And it's great that it's here in the Bible, that you can ask that question in the presence of God and not be pushed away or dismissed. But let's probe the question a little bit. Because it is overstated, isn't it? I mean, of course, there can be unbelieving people in our lives who don't seem to have many problems. But do we actually know? Do we know what's going on in their hearts? Do we know what their troubles are when their minds are freewheeling and there's nothing to distract them? Are they really so problem-free? And what about the others who may not believe and who have plenty of problems? What about them? You see, the doubting heart in seeking validation often becomes an exaggerating heart, a heart that has lost perspective. It's not just that. Verses 6 to 9, the envy extends not just to their apparent 
problem-free kind of ease. He's actually envying their proud self-confidence, which seems to go unchecked. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. He says they wear it openly, brazenly. They're proud, and they're proud of being proud, projecting their self-confident persona as if it were a badge of honor. They act as if they answer to no one. End of, uh, what, verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity, their evil imaginations have no limits, they scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance they threaten oppression. And not even God can get in their way. Verse 11, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? You see, these people, they're kind of on a roll. They're enjoying it, and they seem so self-assured. And you look on at their self-confidence, and you think, wow, that's, that's great. I wish I was like that. It's the kind of attitude you may sometimes encounter in someone who's full of self-confidence, but actually everybody knows they're the workplace bully. Or you might encounter it sometimes in an hus- uh, abusive husband at home. Or more seriously, in the tyranny of a totalitarian totalitarian state whose officials have power but no accountability and strut around with this kind of self-confidence that that draws people after them. And the psalmist looks on and part of him kind of thinks, wow, that looks kind of impressive, but he's also feeling fearful. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Perhaps they're right. Perhaps God won't hold them accountable. And if God won't hold them accountable and do anything, where does that leave Asaph? Sometimes the doubting heart is a fearful heart, struggling to trust God, not sure he really will show up. But then verses 10 and 11, he is envying their influence. Even though they defy God, others are following them. Verse 10, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now, that's one of those little verses that, to be honest, nobody quite knows how to translate. But the basic point seems to be that prosperity and power and self-confidence often buy you influence with people, which is why they're so attractive. And that kind of strutting self-confidence means that people follow them. It's very attractive, so it is. It's as if the message is to say, look, we're getting away with it. Nothing bad's happening to us, so you can have it too. Come, come our way, follow us too. And the writer is feeling the pull, envying their influence Envying their self-assured confidence. Envying their practical atheism, which seems to put no restrictions on them. Envying their social power and how popular they are. I'm so grateful that he spoke like this, you know. I'm so grateful that he was honest. Because I've sometimes felt those things. Haven't you? Haven't you? You're silent. Haven't you? I think we have. I'm sure it was hard for Asaph to admit what was going on in his heart. But it's exactly because he does that that he can help us. He's honest enough to see that behind the presenting doubts, there's actually a deeply troubled heart, a jealous heart, an envious heart that wants for himself what the unbelieving world seems to have and to enjoy. 
Now, of course, there are lots of echoes here of Genesis chapter 3. You remember what the serpent says to Eve? You will not surely die if you don't listen to God's voice. God knows that when you eat from the fruit from which he's forbidden you to eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, Eve, God is holding you back. He's not for you. He's against you. You'll flourish not by pressing into him, but by turning your back and resisting him. It's the oldest challenge to faith of them all, isn't it? It's the oldest question of them all. Do we find our true humanity in God or away from him? That's the real question beneath Asaph's honest doubts. The confusion of his thinking is a confusion of his heart. And by looking so honestly into his heart, he's inviting us onto that same journey where we work through our doubts by going beyond the doubts and looking probingly into our hearts. Are we beginning to be ruled by our fears? Are we actually consumed with envy? Are we exaggerating our views of the freedoms and pleasures of sin? Have we lost confidence in the goodness of God as the bedrock for our lives? That's the essential battle. And it's a battle for our hearts as much as a battle for our raw thinking. And that battle rages around us and it sometimes rages within us. And sometimes it feels like it's going to completely overwhelm us and leave our faith in tatters. In, uh, in my experience of, uh, of struggle, and to be honest, in my experience as a pastor journeying, along, journeying alongside people in crises of different kind, it's often a long process. There's often this long period where things just seem to get worse and worse and worse. And you think, I'm not sure if they can get any worse. And then they do get worse. And your heart breaks as you journey alongside them. But then eventually... We hit that place that we call rock bottom, rock bottom. And of course, the clue is in the name, isn't it? Rock bottom is a very hard place to be. It's the bottom place. But it is so often the place at which change starts to become possible because you've hit rock and there's nothing more crumbling beneath it. You've finally got to the place of honesty, however bleak it is. And that's where verse 13 and 14 take us. It's rock bottom. And uh, really moving on through 13 to 17, this is, this is his assessment, his embittered assessment, which is that purity doesn't pay. Verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. You feel the rawness of that. He's still digging into his heart and his conclusion is that he tried to keep it pure in vain. There was no point. Purity of heart doesn't bring any benefits. You know the feeling? You're trying to do the right thing and it blows up in your face. Someone else does the wrong thing and they seem to get away with it and thrive. It doesn't seem fair. In fact, it's not just that 
It doesn't seem fair. It even feels worse. It feels that God is working against us sometimes. Did you notice verse 14? All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. God, you seem to be working against me in this, making it worse and worse. It's a very dark place to be. As if the world as you've understood it is just unraveling before you. But it is here at rock bottom when everything is out on the table and the doubt in its rawest form has been articulated to God. It's here that we find the first small pushback. It's only a small one in one sense, but it's there, verse 15. If I'd spoken out like that, in other words, if I'd told everybody that was the way I was thinking, I would have betrayed your children. You see, we don't believe and doubt in splendid isolation. We believe and doubt in community. We influence other people. And it's that realization of the community around him that is the first chink of light in Asaph's journey back from the brink. And so he pauses, verse 16. I tried to understand all this, and it troubled me deeply. I think it's a key, key verse. You see, we often think that authentic faith cannot coexist with doubt. But it isn't true. Authentic faith can be troubled faith, as it is here. But rather than just rushing to blame God and betray the faith of his people... He's seeking understanding. He's, he's recognizing that his faith is troubled and he wants some kind of closure, some kind of process. He's not just looking for easy answers. Easy answers never work with this kind of stuff. It's not like that. No, but he's looking for perspective. He's looking for understanding. He's reaching for a glimpse of a bigger picture from which he can begin to journey back. And he then finds that perspective in the sanctuary. Verse 17, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. The sanctuary of God here, of course, is the temple. The place where God's transcendent eternal presence touched earth. Where eternity intersected with time and space. And face to face with the eternal God of justice, he begins to see the bigger picture he needs. Yes, judged by circumstances now, so often we can't see the justice of God. So often we can't see his goodness to his people. But there is an afterwards. There is a final destiny. An eternal perspective within which justice will be done. I think it's so important that it is in the place of worship that he finds that perspective. And I want to say to you, if you're in the middle of a period of doubt, I understand that the worship of God's people communally can be quite difficult, can be quite alienating. You don't know if you can sing the songs. You don't know if you can say amen to the prayers because you're all over the place. 
and maybe to those of us that lead from the front, we need to think about how we can give people permission to keep worshipping when they're sad, to keep worshipping when their faith is confused and troubled. We can perhaps think harder about that. But if you're in that place, I want to urge you, don't pull away from the place of worship. Try and keep yourself there. Even in your own devotions, try and see all those things that you can give thanks to God for. Try and connect with the goodness of God as you've experienced it over the years. Stay in the place of worship because it's in the place of worship where our minds begin to be filled with the truth of God and our hearts are softened by the presence of God. It's in that place that we begin to find perspective. Where we begin to see again the great afterwards of divine justice. Where everything for which the wicked have strived in their rebellion against God is unmade. That takes us to the Psalms' central affirmation. Remember that chiastic structure? There it is, back up on the screen again. And right at the heart of it, this is the big conclusion of the Psalm, that God will bring justice, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground and cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Friend, it may take time, but those who defy God in the end are setting themselves up for a fall. The bullying boss who seems so unassailable. The abusive spouse from whom it feels there's no escape, though maybe there is. The despotic ruler who may survive for a long time. But in the end, they live their lives on a slippery gradient that slopes down to destruction. And in the end, these people who dominate our news headlines, even now, or who maybe dominate our lives in our workplace or even in our homes. These people whose presence looms so large, they will be gone tomorrow, like a bad dream. Dreams feel so real at the time, don't they? But usually they evaporate the moment we awake. Often we can't even remember them. And so it will be with those who live in defiance of God. And the justice is not just clinical, it is personal. Verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. They won't get away with it forever. For God is the God of justice, and he will see that justice is done. And from that vantage point of this confidence in the ultimate justice of God, Asaph begins to question his own doubts. And I think that's a wonderful lesson to take from the psalm, questioning our doubts. As young adults, Alison and I were members of a church in Nottingham with a, a wonderful sort of intellectual pastor thinker kind of person called Peter Lewis. He died a few months ago and we remember him with deep thankfulness for his impact on our lives. But Peter often used to point out to us that in our society, faith is regarded as naive and ignorance 
and doubt as noble and sophisticated. So that the pressure is constantly on us to believe our doubts and doubt our beliefs. That feels like the honest, sophisticated, authentic thing to do. But why? There could be another way. Actually, a more honest way. For none of us is purely objective in the way that we think about the world. There is another way, a better way, which is to believe your beliefs and use them to question your doubts. And when we use a well-founded belief to question our doubts, it's an incredibly powerful process that can gradually help those doubts to unravel. So what's the journey? Verses 21 and 22. Reassessment. As he realizes that perhaps his heart was not so pure as he was perhaps implying in verse 1. Let's read verses 21 and 2. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I wasn't really the pure of heart, was I? I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's, that is so honest, isn't it? I mean, where do you see self-awareness like that? He's saying, look, honestly, something was going on in my heart and I was irrational. I wasn't being ruled by wisdom. Do you know, it can be very courageous to face our doubts. I do believe that. But it's even more courageous to face our hearts. And that's what Asaph is daring us to do here. Maybe you're experiencing doubts and rebellious thoughts. And you're kind of feeling, look, the only, the only help I'm going to uh, accept is the kind of quick answer. Otherwise, I'm only up for stuff that validates my doubts and my questions. But no, Asaph says, face your heart. That's the more courageous thing. Go deeper, examine, reassess your heart. Ask yourself what it is honestly that you're wanting. Truly that you're thinking at the deepest level, not just a clever argument that's kind of helping you distance yourself from God and his scrutiny in your life, but the deep values, what's going on underneath. That's where the courage is and the pain, but that's where the journey back can begin. Because when we face our hearts, however painful, it's a healing pain because we're finally facing reality. And so in verses 23 to 26, there's the moment of resolution as he realizes the lasting prosperity of the people of God. This is the true counterbalance to the original problem. Remember, he was transfixed by the apparent prosperity of the wicked, but now God has wooed and won his heart with a vision of the true and lasting riches of the people of God. Verse 23a, the presence of God, yet I am always with you. Even when we are doubting, even when we are asking tough questions of God, still the people of God are in his presence. His presence surrounds us. We are not alone, even in our doubts. And then God's comfort and support, end of verse 23, you hold me by my right hand. Isn't that wonderful? He's not sure he can cling on to God, but now he's come to the place of worship. Now his perspective has been lifting. He realizes that God has been holding him with his right hands. 
And then God's guidance, verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. I love that. This isn't just kind of God controlling us on like a kind of remote control drone or something. You press the buttons. And go, no, no, he guides us with his counsel. That is, he forms our minds with wisdom so that we can begin to make decisions which reflect the wisdom of God. You guide me with your counsel. And then God's future. Afterwards, you will take me into glory. End of verse 24. Afterwards. There is an afterwards for the people of God, a destiny for the people of God. And it's a wonderful destiny, a destiny which will wipe away all the contradictions and griefs and disappointments of this life in a moment. Isn't that wonderful? You know that image in Revelation, I think it's 7 and then again Revelation 21, where it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I just love that because it's an incredibly intimate picture, isn't it? It doesn't say in that moment God will hand you a tissue and say, there we are, get over it, wipe your eyes. No, he'll come that close that he picks up the tissue and he wipes away the tear. All the griefs of a lifetime, all the contradictions of a troubled life, all the pain and the struggle of the years wiped away by the healing tenderness and grace of God. That is the destiny of the people of God. Remember the renewal of our minds? It's the renewal. It's the anticipation of the great renewal which God is going to bring to the whole of creation where all things are reconciled to God through the cross. And our minds are renewed when they begin to grasp that perspective, when we begin to think the thoughts of the future. And in that renewal comes our hope. So this is the truth that changes his perspective. He's no longer envying the prosperity of other people because he's seen the riches that he has in God. And friends, how much more can we see the riches that we have in Christ. Remember Ephesians 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The language is so strong, it's so extravagant. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In him our lives were crowned with grace from the Father redemption from the Son, the seal of the Spirit. We could not be more blessed than we are when we see ourselves in Christ Jesus. He died to take away our rebellion. He rose from death to anchor our faith and give us life. He sent his Spirit by whom we live now with the taste of the future in our hearts and minds. And so the psalm that began in despair ends in praise. He began complaining that, that purity didn't pay. But now verse 25, he's saying, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. He began complaining that the wicked always had good health. But now verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so he concludes with the renewal of faith. He rounds it off with this final celebration 
of God's justice and affirmation of his goodness. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. There's the afterwards of divine justice. But there's also and afterwards of divine grace. Verse 28, but as for me, I love that. Verse two had that as for me, didn't it? My feet had almost slipped. Now we've got another as for me. And it's an as for me of renewal. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. Friend, Are you troubled with doubts, with rebellious thoughts, with uncertainty about the goodness of God? I'm sure there will be a good number of us in this tent today for whom that's a familiar struggle. It's okay to say so. It's okay to tell God what you're really thinking and feeling. But I want to urge you if that's where you find yourself or if you're standing alongside others in that position to walk the painful journey of this psalm. Face your doubts, true, but don't stop there. Probe your heart as well. It's deepest attitudes. It's underlying values and assumptions and desires. Open it to the word of God and the transforming presence of God by the Holy Spirit. Inviting him to renew your mind from the inside so that you begin to live with the perspective of eternity and with the rhythm of the future beating in your heart. And as you do, God will help you see all that you have in Christ. And bring you slowly, step by step, at the right pace for you perhaps, through that journey of doubt and into the song of praise. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I want to uh, just encourage you to uh, seek support from our friends in the prayer ministry tent to your left to my right, who are there this morning and would love to give you a, a non-judgmental hearing friend and support to stand with you and to pray with you. Such a help to be alongside godly people in times of struggle. But Lord Jesus, we want to ask you to come near to us in our struggles and in our doubts, to give us the courage to be authentic and to probe deeper to understand our hearts and to find in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit the hope of eternity in which we can reframe the struggles of this life and be sure of a better day when there is no more mourning or crying or sorrow or pain. How we thank you for that living hope in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.